One of the most wonderful things about teaching retreat is getting to sit up here and look out at you over the course of the week, how you become transformed. Your faces soften and it's really, it's really beautiful. (laughs) It's really a joy. Hmm. So, as we've said since I think the very first night of this retreat, we are cultivating concentration for a purpose. I think Adrian quoted the Buddha, cultivate wise concentration one who cultivates wise concentration sees things as they are. The um, seeing things as they are really comes, ties back to the the purpose or the, the motivation that the Buddha had in undertaking his own journey. The question of what the Buddha essentially saw was the, the, the basic problem of the human condition that we struggle, that we suffer. And he wondered if it was possible to be free from that. And his own journey gave him the understanding and the amazing wisdom. I mean, I think he had the most amazing mind to be able to not only see the truth, but understand a way to articulate it so that we could hear it. not only articulate it, but describe how he explored his own mind to free his mind. So we cultivate wise concentration, which is, as was defined a couple of times, concentration equipped with its seven requisites wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, and wise mindfulness. The, these, this wise concentration, which is essentially the interweaving of the factors of the Eightfold Path, they are present together. When, when wise concentration is in place, all of these factors are in place. And it supports us being able to see into this question of suffering for ourselves. To understand suffering, to understand how our minds get caught. To let go of the cause of suffering and to realize for ourselves the freedom. 
As I said this morning, I think the understanding of dukkha, you know, the dukkha that we are looking at, the suffering we are looking at, is not just unpleasant experience. It's not, it's not, it's not unpleasant experience. It's the way we resist the deep truths of things as they are. See, cultivate concentration so we can see things as they are. We, zi- we resist the truth of things as they are. We resist the truths of impermanence, unreliability, not self. So cultivating this path, cultivating wise concentration, which in this very definition is the path It contains the path. We cultivate wise concentration to realize freedom from this resistance to things as they are. We come and think of it as coming into alignment with truth. There's some definitions of what this freedom is in the texts. And um, Nibbana, the term, the Pali term for awakening, literally it means something like cooling, which is perhaps evocative on a day like today. But this definition of freedom, enlightenment, you know, I would have thought it would be, have been something really mystical. You know, before I really began studying, I heard this word enlightenment. You know, when I was a teenager, this word was in the air. And it's like, well, that sounds good, you know. But I had this image or, or idea of what I thought it meant. And it uh, basically didn't have anything to do with reality. And the definition of Nibbana, perhaps not the definition, but the Buddha's description of Nibbana, the extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This is called Nibbana. Now, when I read that definition, you know, it doesn't like, you know, conjure up images of floating in some mystical space. It connects me with, I can envision this happening here and now. The possibility of living a life free from greed, free from hatred, free from delusion. So to me, that's an inspiring definition. It doesn't sound like too many bells and whistles, but... At least it's, uh, it sounds like it might be possible to live that. There's a little bit more that the Buddha describes about these three. Greed, hatred, delusion, sometimes called greed, aversion, delusion. The Pali terms loba, dosa, moha. 
And they're translated in different ways in this text. So just understand they're referring, I believe they're referring to the same, same three terms. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, with mind ensnared, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So here he adds a little bit more to the description of the experience of this freedom. Not just given up, free from greed, aversion, delusion, but experiencing no mental pain or grief. Again, a definition that could be envisioned in this very life. And as he says, this is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life. That's inspiring to me. That possibility, freedom in this life. The unified and collected mind, wise concentration, essentially creates the conditions for us to be able to find our way to this possibility. The tools, the Eightfold Path, could be considered the tools to support us learning how to give up greed, aversion, and delusion. So perhaps it may seem paradoxical that the path to giving up greed, aversion, and delusion lies by in, lies in using this concentrated mind to witness greed arising in the mind, aversion arising in the mind, and to learn how to unmask delusion arising in the mind. The path goes through the exploration of dukkha. I think it was Joseph that said something like, we want insight into dukkha without experiencing dukkha. (laughs) And it doesn't happen that way. So I'd like to explore these three themes of greed, aversion, and delusion and hopefully primarily spend time with exploring what it might mean to unmask delusion. Because greed and aversion 
they're more easy to understand in a way. But often I get the question, how on earth do we see delusion? And so I'd like to spend hopefully quite a bit of time on that particular question. But just to begin with greed and aversion. Using the concentrated mind to purify greed and aversion through cultivating wholesome qualities, through abandoning unwholesome qualities, through observing greed and aversion in our minds. The very act of bringing wise concentration, which includes wise effort and wise mindfulness, so this samadhi factor, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration together, the the bringing that quality of mind to greed or aversion has this amazing capacity to help the mind see very clearly this state of mind of greed leads to to unhappiness, leads to struggle, unease, dissatisfaction. And the very seeing of that, because the mind also sees as, as concentration is brought to the arising of greed and aversion, the mind also sees that it is doing that greed and aversion. It is actively participating in wanting things, holding on, getting rid of things that we don't like, pleasant things we want to hold on to, unpleasant things we want to get rid of. And that's an activity in our minds, that greed and aversion. And the mind in the mind infused with wise concentration, when it sees that the mind itself is contributing to its own struggle, the mind finds its way to letting go of that greed or aversion. In some seemingly magical way, although it's not magical, uh, when we bring that mind, that, that unified and collected mind with wise mindfulness and concentration together, when we bring that mind to unwholesome qualities arising in our mind, it leads to the conditions for those qualities of mind to appear less frequently. It's as if those unwholesome states of mind wither and shrink and can't hold up in the light of that beautiful mind filled with wise concentration. And beautiful qualities of mind, metta, compassion, joy, equanimity, Mindfulness, concentration, patience, generosity, a whole host of beautiful qualities. As we uh, turn our mind with wise concentration towards those qualities, 
it tends to create the conditions for them to appear more frequently. So it's an amazing property, amazing thing, this unified and collected mind gathered with wise effort and wise mindfulness. So the wise concentration that we've been cultivating, the one-pointed concentration, that very practice tends to make the more obvious forms of greed and aversion fall away. Those forms of greed and aversion that are based in um, wanting pleasant things around us, you know, the, the, the greed and aversion based in the sense world, essentially. So the uh, mind that settles in wise concentration is secluded from the hindrances of sense desire and ill will, those hindrances Adrian talked about the other night. Secluded from all of the, the hindrances, but in particular, sense, de, uh, sense desire and ill will are kind of the grosser forms of greed and aversion, the more obvious forms of greed and aversion. And yet, as we practice concentration, subtler forms of greed and aversion will arise. You've all seen this, how the states of concentration, the, the, the peace, the ease that you have all tasted, even if only for moments here and there, how the mind wants them wants to reach out and, and hold on to them, find them again. So, this is just part of the purification. The greed arises in the mind around this state of mind. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's in a sense a more worthy object for desire. And yet the greed, the greed creates suffering. And this is what our mindfulness concentration, that unified wise concentration shows us. That as we observe greed, as we observe aversion, we see inherently the states of greed and aversion do not lead to well-being. I had a um, demonstration of this on one early retreat, just how much the Uh, the mind gets educated by witnessing greed and aversion and how the mind begins to let go. I was doing walking meditation and uh, in this particular instance I was experiencing a lot of wanting while walking. I was doing the walking with my eyes really down, secluded. This is what I had been told to do. So I was being a good yogi doing what I was told, and I was wanting to see the other people who were around me. I really, really, really wanted to look up. 
every time somebody walked by. And yet, I was being a good yogi, so I was like, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. And at some point after weeks of this, because this was on a three-month course, it was like, duh, maybe I should notice that there's wanting here. It took me a long time to recognize, oh, this is wanting. This should be known. The mind, the concentration should be applied to know that. And so I began observing that. I began observing that wanting. And it was very interesting to watch the wanting. I still kept my eyes down, so I didn't give in to the wanting. And this is really a description of the middle way, you know, that we neither repress something nor act on it. So I didn't repress the wanting, as I was doing when I said, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. Nor did I act on it by actually looking up and seeing people. So I I kept my eyes down, but I began noticing the wanting. Rather than repressing the wanting, I began to feel, how does this wanting arise? What happens? So I was doing walking, and often I was walking in places that were fairly secluded, so not too many people were around. Probably I did that intentionally. (laughs) And I began to notice that the wanting began as soon as somebody kind of came into my peripheral vision somebody pops into my peripheral vision and oh the wanting just boom there it is so I watched it I felt it it felt like a magnet felt like I was being pulled it was actually kind of hard not to act on it but I just felt that feeling of being pulled towards that looking at somebody and I watched that, and they, this, this, the one I particularly remember, um, the person kind of walked up next to me, and, and I was like really, you know, pulled. It's like almost having to not follow through on the magnet of the eyes. It would have just taken the smallest little flick of the eyes to look up. <laughs> and then the person walked right in front of me, really tempting. Then they walked up the stairs, into the building, into the door. The wanting vanished as soon as the person disappeared into the building. That was amazing to see the wanting vanish. And in seeing the wanting vanish there, the mind understood that the wanting itself was the struggle, the suffering. It wasn't not having what the wanting was asking for. That was the problem. That's what wanting tries to make us believe. Aversion tries to make us believe something similar, that if we only can get rid of the thing, then that's where our happiness will lie. But what the mind deeply understood in that moment, actually that moment when the wanting vanished, it felt like my mind had been released from a vice grip. There was such a feeling of release. Such a feeling of release. The mind, in that moment, deeply understood the happiness comes from the letting go, not from the having. Very, very deep lesson. So there's quite a lot we could explore around greed and aversion in terms of observing them 
But I do want to explore delusion with you. Delusion can actually arise out of greed and aversion in an interesting cycle that um, an aversive mind state, for instance, can create a, a filter through which we see experience. I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about. You know, when we get angry or frustrated, it's like we start seeing the world from that perspective. I um, particularly recognize this around the flavor of aversion that is impatience. If I see something makes me impatient, if something if my mind experiences something and impatience arises, um, if there's that arising of impatience around some situation, very frequently in moving into other situations, that impatience like carries along with me. And there starts being impatience around other experiences. And so aversion and greed can create this filter on our experience so that we're seeing things through that lens. Essentially seeing things from a given, a certain perspective and not seeing things clearly because we have this filter on. This is kind of a manifestation of delusion. Delusion is kind of inherently that, that having a veil or having something uh, obscuring the truth of things as they are. Greed and aversion can create those veils. And yet, the delusion is more fundamental than greed and aversion. So while greed and aversion can create a filter that results in this veil of obscuration between us and reality, or between reality and the mind, or however we want to... It's not really an us. <laughs> um, delusion is more fundamental because without delusion, greed and aversion wouldn't exist. So it, delusion can exist in the absence of greed and aversion. But greed and aversion always come with delusion. So I'll, get, I'll come back to that as we go through this exploration of delusion. So there's kind of layers of delusion, the layers of obscurations that cloud or filter our meeting with reality. Kind of the most obvious layer, well, I'll just name the three layers first and then I'll go through them kind of from the most gross to the more subtle. The first is a kind of a not knowing, a being disconnected, mind states like uncertainty, confusion, disconnection, that kind of state of mind, spaced out, that kind of state of mind where the mind is disconnected from experience. 
then there is delusion that comes from views, kind of these filters that come into play. How we look at our world based on views, opinions, agendas, concepts. I would call this the kind of personal delusion. These are delusions that we uh, have based on our personal conditioning, um, based on societal conditioning. And then there's the deeper form of delusion, which is, across the board, a human phenomenon. The, the deeper delusions, fundamental ways that as humans we distort reality. So those are the three levels that I'll go through. So the first, not connecting, lack of awareness. This is basically the, you know, the non-mindful state. When we are not mindful, not present, there's a cloud of delusion. We may be lost in thought, lost in a thought bubble. I had a, a, an experience of the kind of bursting of that bubble at one point that was so clear. Um, I had been, um, I had had a relationship with somebody and we had broken up years before and I had worked through much of the, well actually by that point, I think pretty much all of the anger uh, around the breakup of the relationship. And... Um, one day I was walking down the street and woke up into the thought bubble of being back in relationship with that person. And there was like confusion in the mind. It's like, what? Wait a minute. What? Am I in relationship with that person? No, no, I'm not in relationship. That was years ago. But for the moment, in that thought bubble, the mind believed it was back in that relationship. And it was easy to see in that particular instance because the, the anger and the disappointment and the betrayal and the resentment had all gone away and so that world of thought that I had been born into and living in, believing its reality, didn't have the emotional charge when I woke up into it. And so I could just clearly see that the mind had created this reality that had nothing to do with truth. So this happens all the time. Our minds do this a lot. And often what happens in that moment, we wake up into that reality and we are living in the emotional reality of that mental creation. Delusion has created a reality and our minds have bought it hook, line and sinker and are going through the emotions of it. So this is some of the power of delusion. Living in an unreal world. Shakespeare. Shakespeare actually seemed to understand delusion. In the Tempest, there were two, there was a, a character that was, had been enchanted and he was doing some very strange things and the other, one of the other characters was watching him and kind of just in awe and curiosity about, wow, look at, look at that guy, look at what he's doing. And he said, this is a strange repose. To be asleep with eyes wide open, 
standing, speaking, moving, and yet so fast asleep. This is a large part of our waking reality. We can get familiar with this kind of delusion in just this very way that I described, seeing the moment of waking up, noticing that moment when the mindfulness returns, in that moment when, poof, mindfulness comes back. If concentration is fairly strong, which it can be, even if mindfulness disappears in times, the concentration can have a momentum. So we get lost in thought, and mindfulness and concentration return. And if mindfulness and concentration are fairly strong, we can see the arising of that um, moment of awareness and recognize the kind of a moment ago what the mind was lost in, confused about. So we can see the contrast between the mind that was deluded and confused and the mind that is awake in this moment. Often what we do in that moment when the mind wakes up, when the mind comes out of delusion, is we judge ourselves for it. Or maybe the, the concentration isn't quite strong enough to actually catch that moment. But it is possible to begin to cultivate an interest in that moment of mindfulness and concentration returning in a moment. And begin to learn something about that state of delusion, that state of lost, constructed, in constructed reality. And as we get familiar with even the lingering scent of that experience of being lost in a thought world, it seems to give the mind a little bit of a toehold to be able to recognize it more quickly. It's actually even possible to wake up into certain states that we would consider inherently non-mindful. Like the state of spaced out, for instance. We might inherently consider that to be a place where mindfulness could not go. But actually, we can wake up in the middle of spaced out and know it fully. What tends to happen in that moment is that it vanishes or evaporates kind of like the fog does when the sun comes out. But we can, we can wake up into that state and know it fully. And this is something I encourage people in to not assume that mindfulness and concentration can't go somewhere. We can, the mindfulness and concentration can go places, meet experiences that you would be surprised. You would be surprised how, how much mindfulness can see that you would think it couldn't see. Falling asleep, watching the mind fall asleep watching the mind go to sleep, watching the mind from waking consciousness falling asleep into a dream, into a lucid dream. It's amazing 
how much the mind can wake up to. So if you're sitting in sleepiness or dullness or spaced out, rather than feeling like you had to change that, this is part of the exploration of bringing concentrated mind to our experience, opening to experience. Can we open into spaced out, dull, foggy, sleepy? It is possible. It is possible. So these are, these are these areas of lack of awareness that the states of mind that tend to have lack of awareness but don't necessarily have to have lack of awareness. Then there's the second layer of delusion, the delusion based in views, personal conditioning. These are personal kind of views, views, uh, filters, delusions, beliefs in who we are, what we're capable of, um, that are kind of based in our personal conditioning, our societal conditioning. We all have views about who we are, what we're capable of. And we walk around with those views, believing them, and those views limit us. We recognize this kind of limitation when it's imposed on us by other people, but we don't recognize it as easily when we, when we impose it on ourselves. There's so many different ways this kind of thing happens. You know, in societal conditioning is another, another thing. You know, it's a, when we're told something repeatedly, we tend to believe it. You know, for instance, America is the land of opportunity. Anyone who works hard enough can achieve their goals. So we're told that and we believe it and don't see many of us that it's perhaps variably true for a certain population who have economic and racial and gender privilege And it, this, can, this leads to kind of the delusion in our cultural realm of not seeing the privileges that we're swimming in. And this is kind of a, a, a manifestation of how delusion works. We don't see the views that we're swimming in. So it takes some education sometimes. It takes willingness to meet what's happening in our experience, and it takes willingness to confront suffering because suffering results with delusion. This, this kind of delusion also happens um, based on not just being told things, right? Not just being told, oh yes, this is the way it is. Which is, you know, this is a lot of how our neuroses get built, right? We're told things are this way from the time we're young and we believe them. Um, But then also views 
delusions get constructed um, based on our own personal experience. We experience something and we create a, uh, an idea about it and then believe the idea. So the classic story of this, a teaching story from the time of the Buddha, is the story of the blind people and the elephant, where a king brings, asks, um, asks his minister to bring some blind people and bring an elephant, and then he, he says, please show the blind people the elephant. And some of the blind people are asked to touch the side of the elephant, some the legs, some the tail, some the tusks, some the ears, And each forms different views about what an elephant is. Now that's not terribly surprising, given it came from direct experience. The power of delusion in this is that, as the teaching story goes on, that when they were asked to tell each other what an elephant is like, they described it differently. One said, well... The elephant is like a storeroom that has touched the side of the elephant. Or an elephant is like a broom, that one who'd touched the tail. An elephant is like a winnowing basket, the one who touched the ears. Or like a rope, the one who touched the trunk. And the story goes on that they came to blows, quarreling. An elephant is like this. An elephant is not like that. So based on their own experience, what they had experienced had some measure of truth, reality, some descriptiveness, that we can see how they got their descriptions. But it was based on a partial experience. And we create many, many views like this and then see our reality through those views, denying that other realities could be true. So views are going to happen. The lesson here for us really is to begin to recognize when we're holding views. The Buddha uh, said something very beautiful about truth. He said, how do we preserve the truth? He said, we can preserve the truth by when we have a certain faith, we say, my faith is thus. We can preserve the truth by saying, when we have a certain view, my view is thus. That preserves the truth. Because it is acknowledging that what's happening is that there is a view arising in the mind. But what tends to happen is that we take our views to be truth, not as a view. Views are very useful. Thoughts are useful. What we need to recognize is that they are phenomena arising in the mind. They have no inherent the, the, the content of those has no inherent truth to them. The truth of a view is that it is a phenomenon arising in the present moment. All else is speculation, 
<laughs> and so the exploration around this aspect of delusion is really to begin to investigate our views, to look and see, do I really know something? What do I truly know? The most fundamental kind of delusion, this human delusion that we all share. I mean, the, these, these delusions that are based, the, the delusions, the ways we meet our reality based on the views and opinions we form, you know, based on who we've met, who we've talked to, what we've studied. Those are, you know, those, those are personal. I mean, you, you, you ask any ten people about views about climate change, you'll get different responses. So those are, those are views that are constructed based on conditioning from how we've lived our life, who, what we've learned, who we've talked to. These more human delusions seem to be embedded in our psyche from the moment of birth. And these are really insidious because they cloud our perception. They fundamentally obscure reality in a, in very, in a very fundamental way. And there's three really fundamental delusions like this. And this will be familiar to you basic distortions of the way we tend to meet experience as human beings. We tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable in terms of a place of lasting happiness as being reliable. And we tend to take what is not self as self. So these are the three core insights of insight practice that Donald spoke about last night. The, the insights around impermanence, suffering or unreliability and not self, essentially counter these fundamental delusions. One of my teachers said, this kind of delusion doesn't mask our experience. It doesn't create a veil that keeps us from seeing experience, much as the first kind of delusion did. The first kind of delusion kind of creates a veil where we're not even seeing things. You know, we're living in a completely constructed reality. My teacher said, this kind of delusion doesn't mask experience, or doesn't mask the object is how he put it. It masks the true nature of the object. Shakespeare put it this way. Again, two characters talking to each other about another character. He misses not much. No, 
he doth but mistake the truth totally. (laughs) This is this kind of delusion. We mistake the truth totally. So we see what is impermanent as permanent. A lot of this, as, as Donald mentioned last night, partly comes just from the rapidity of change that things are changing so rapidly that our sense apparatus put things together to make them look solid. And then we believe that solidity. It's like the movie that he talked about. So the rapidity of change masks the change. And certainly particle physicists would tell you that the rapidity of particle movement Everything in reality is just this rapidly moving particles. Nothing stable anywhere for any split second. But things appear solid just because they're moving so fast. Another way that uh, this impermanence is masked is because of concept. Concept masks change. We create an idea in our minds and we live experience through that idea. Some of you may have noticed this with um, pain. You know, the idea of pain. And then beginning to explore what pain actually is. When we have the idea of pain, for instance, a pain in our knee, it feels like a solid block And yet when we begin to explore it, it's a lively, dynamic, changing experience where there's no one place where the pain can be pinned down. Concepts are a huge way in which our minds mask impermanence very powerful way that our minds mask impermanence. Now again, concepts are really helpful. You know, it's not not easy to live a world without concepts. I mean, if I had to come in this room and each time look out and figure out that there are people out here and that that's a floor and those are walls and, you know, our minds have created this shortcut of concept to serve us in getting through our lives. But it it is a shortcut, and the concept itself is not the reality. And so this is part of our exploration in mindfulness practice, in concentration, with our wise concentration. We begin to explore experience underneath the, the level of concept. And we start to see the dynamic, radically changing nature of experience. This is the direction of the Vipassana practice. We incline towards noticing experience under the level of concept and seeing the change. Inclining towards change helps us to get under the level of concept. Helps us to meet this truth of impermanence. And really helps us to see that trying to hold on to anything is an exercise in futility. That clinging to anything 
is going to create that rope burn I talked about this morning. So investigating what appears solid, what appears like it's unchanging. That is worthy of investigation, worthy of bringing your wise concentration to. When something feels solid, don't take for granted that it is solid. Investigate it. Wise concentration will begin to reveal its changing nature. And basically because things are impermanent, they are inherently unreliable, this second characteristic. And the mistake that we make here, believing things to be satisfactory, believing things to be reliable. This is a lot of how we get ourselves stuck into trouble too. we, We live our lives so much with this mistake, with this delusion, that there's something out there that's going to do it for me. Some sense experience, some opinion of somebody that we, 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 we seek for not only material things but having ideas, views, opinions. We want to have um, emotions coming from other people. We want to have somebody to have a certain opinion of us. You've looked at your own minds. How reliable are your opinions and your emotions? And we want them from others. What an exercise in Suffering, oh my gosh. It's so sad. (laughs) So we have this fundamental mistake that we think we know how to find that sense, that, that, that happiness. We mistake completely where happiness can be found. The Buddha suggested, look at where you find happiness. So yes, Having a piece of chocolate may bring happiness. I just bought a new car and I'm exploring this happiness around the new car. (laughs) And uh, I noticed one interesting piece about this. I mean, mostly the happiness of the new car isn't there. I mean, mostly... It's interesting, I, I've particularly been noticing this because I'm not driving it around, you know, these days. I'm mostly here, so. But when I walk down the hill, I walk past my new car and there's a little moment of, ooh, I have a new car. A little happiness there. And the happiness around that seems to have to do with control. It's a feeling that I could create a situation. And it's, you know, there was that possibility of having arranged my world here for a, a, a moment. But, you know, a delivery truck could come up the hill and demolish my new car. <laughs> so I don't have any control. <laughs> so this illusion around happiness, the Buddha asked us, to look at that happiness. He acknowledged, yes, there is happiness to be found in sense pleasure. But he said, look at it. His instruction to us was, how far does that happiness extend? How satisfying is it really? 
And what happens when we make that investigation is we see it's fleeting. There's not much depth to that happiness. And yet we live our lives constructing, thinking that happiness lies in constructing the surface level of getting what I want and feeling like I have control even for just like, you know, a few moments. And then we do it again, so we feel like we have control for another few moments. So we explore this delusion by looking at the unreliability of our happiness. But we can explore it from where we are. I like that this teaching of start from, yeah, happiness is here. Acknowledge that and then really see it. How satisfying is that happiness really? The Buddha's teaching um, for us on cultivating wise concentration is essentially that by relying on wise concentration, he uses this teaching, by relying on this, abandon that. By relying on wise concentration, you know, wise concentration creates a much more stable kind of happiness. It's not permanent. It is not reliable either. But it is a more reliable kind of happiness. And it helps us to let go of that really unreliable kind of happiness. And then we bring our mindful attention to, we bring our concentration and mindfulness together to bear on that state itself, the happiness of concentration itself. And we begin to investigate, that too is impermanent. That too is unreliable. And much as I described with the letting go of the wanting, when we see the release of the wanting for the happiness of even concentration, it feels like being released from a vice grip. So I'm not going to get to the third one. Seeing what is not self is self. I want to kind of come back to this exploration of non-delusion. And we're looking at it with our wise concentration, looking at our minds with wise concentration, beginning to explore how our minds deceive ourselves. But this opening to the truth isn't something that we can do. So non-delusion, it's like the the Buddha said, um, the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion is nibbana. We can't do non-delusion. We can investigate experience, begin to see how our mind creates these filters We can begin to recognize we're seeing through these filters, but we can't seem to say, oh, there's a filter there. Be gone, filter. Our minds don't don't let go of things quite that easily. But we can watch it. We can witness it and watch it perhaps at times 
vanish. Much as I described the wanting vanishing. We see a filter vanishing and we see experience in a new way. We've seen the falling away of a delusion in that moment. There's a moment of of clarity, even if it's just partial clarity. And in that moment of seeing that release from that filter, we understand the filter a little bit. We understand how it functions in our minds and we maybe begin to be able to uh, recognize it more clearly the next time it comes back. Because they do tend to come back even after they've fallen away. Because insights are impermanent. Mostly. Insights are impermanent. They seem so obvious to us when they're there. How can I not see this? And yet delusion is so compelling and so deeply embedded in our minds that, you know, an hour later, wow, I guess it wasn't so obvious. But having seen experience without that delusion, we, there's a way in which we know we're seeing through delusion now and that very knowledge supports us in investigating our confusion, our delusion. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.